Hey listeners, today's episode deals with the topics of anti-Semitism, anti-Black racism, child death, and racial violence. We wanted to notify our listeners who may experience trauma related to those topics ahead of the episode and to let you know that resources are listed on the website. Thanks for listening. In this true crime law and order podcast, the episodes are presented by two separate yet equally ridiculous individuals, one who researches the actual crime and the other who recaps the episode. These are their stories. Happy uh, July 10th. <laughs> Happy July 10th. So five days early. So you, uh, you're time traveling right now, really. Wow. It's like, what an inside behind the scenes scoop. <laughs> behind the music. <laughs> What's going on? A lot of things are going in the world, in my life, in, in your my, life, in my life. Ooh, not a whole lot. We watched a terrible movie this week. What? We watched It Part Two. Ooh, like the it's the sequel to the newest It that came out a few years back, right? Mm-hmm. mm-hmm. Okay. Um. Wow. I okay. I remember liking the first reboot of It, like the first part. Okay. And I remember as a kid watching the original It and being scared, but I don't have a lot of recollection of it besides that. Okay. Wow. I don't know if I just am different now or something has changed or if I'm <laughs> a little bit more socially aware, but It Part 2 was so incredibly problematic from like oh, the really? very first scene. Wow. And I just don't think it got any better. And I tried to like look into it online and I was like, was this in the first movie and I don't remember it? Because, uh-huh. you know, they split the second movie into two parts because in the first movie, like, they they show them as kids and then they fast forward 20 years later or whatever. Okay. And so in the reboot, they did the kids part and then the adult part. Got big, it. Big mistake, in my opinion. Mm. And you know how long the second part was? Almost three hours. Yes. It was like two hours and 40 something minutes. I couldn't believe it. But anyway. I think we've... I think we've talked in the past about, or at least I know I have talked in the past about, in like the last probably 20 years, movies went from 90 minutes to like no less than two and a half hours. <laughs> and I, I, I think it's a mark of lazy editing. I I agree. I agree. They think everything is too good. I think that this was like, oh, we want to fit in as many references as possible. Let's make the second part so long. Wow. And I just have to say, they introduced two gay characters at the very beginning of the episode of the movie <laughs> mm-hmm. they kill them imme- immediately i was gonna say probably die immediately, immediately. Right? and in, a, in like a hate crime kind of way no relevance to the rest of the film whatsoever None. <laughs> just gratuitous uh homophobic violence they take the black character and they take away all like the interesting things about his backstory and give it to somebody else and then uh-huh. he is like he's really important but he's also the only one of the crew that's sort of like villainous of them Okay. And I just was like, show, show, so shocked. shocked. (laughs) What a shame. Speaking of terrible things, Mm. I, we usually, you know how we have recommendations. I have kind of an (laughs) (laughs) anti-recommendation, which is I was kind of like surfing Netflix. Like I had finished a show and I was looking for the new show to start. And I stumbled across a show called The Investigator, either colon or dash, a British crime story. Okay. The story is about a, like, mother's disappearance. The family never sees her again. And I think the dad was convicted of the murder, even though there was never a body recovered. Okay. But I made it through 30 minutes of the first episode, 
And all they did was repeat the same two pieces of information over and over. So they would like interview the daughter who'd be like, and that was the last time I saw her mom. And then literally they would spend like the next several minutes being like, and Becky never saw her mom again after that day. Her body was never found. Like they just kept Uh, saying those two things for 30 minutes. And I was like, this is fucking atrocious. So I don't know if it gets better, but they lost me. That is terrible. That is such a mark of usually like early to late 90s crime TV. Oh, 100%. Episodic ones like, you know, those shows that are on ID and things that are like killer women or people who yes. na- nightmare next door where they just repeat <laughs> the same thing so many times. And every time there's a commercial break right before it, they say something. And right after yes. it, you get a five minute like recap reco- of what recap. you just saw. Yes. <laughs> so irritating. Terrible. Oh, I'm sorry. I have some sort of recommendations, I guess. Things I've been okay. into lately. Um, two are sort of updates. I have finished, not finished, I've caught up with the second season of To Live and Die in LA, the podcast Ooh. I recommended not too long uh-huh. ago. Is it? Does it stay great all the way through? I'm just in, the next episode I think comes out next week. Okay. I cannot recommend it enough. The second season <laughs> is just taking me on such a ride and... I won't give anything away, but all I'll say is that following the last episode, which just came out this week, I believe, if the person who seems to be the suspect does not get arrested after this investigation that's currently, I don't know, I don't, I would be shocked, shocked. Uh-huh. Wow. The evidence is stag- like staggering. Um, And so it's still going on. Mm-hmm. It's not, okay. Yeah, okay. yeah. And then I also, another show that's still going on that just had two new episodes released on Tuesday of this week, was My Own Backyard, the Kristen Smart case. Yes, okay. So he just released two new episodes, a two-part kind of like where we are now on the trials of both Ruben and Paul. Ruben and Paul. And wow, there's been so much that's happened and so much gets revealed. It's insane, insane. I think I was listening to a Sinisterhood episode about it. Mm. And it was pretty engrossing. Um, speaking of which, I have two things to talk about, wh- one of which is my, <laughs> I feel like my weekly shout out to Sinisterhood, but mm-hmm. they are doing a two-part series on Erica Girardi and Tom Girardi. Ooh. Oh, and you mentioned this. <laughs> it's, I probably talked about it last week, but I started, list- they released part two this week and it was, it's just so good and what like listening to them get into the housewives and talk about the different housewives is so much fun, so Highly recommend if you're a Housewives fan or a fan of hearing about awful people who screw over (laughs) other people and are starting to uh, maybe get their just desserts. It's a pretty good listen. Yeah. Wow. I Speaking of that, I'm glad you brought that up. I found an Instagram, which I believe is 2A Podcast, so I haven't listened to the podcast yet, but it's called The Bravo Docket. Oh, okay. And it's two attorneys who discuss reality TV legal disputes. (gasps) Ooh. And I just was browsing their Instagram, which is great. Okay. Um, I highly recommend you check it out. It has just these really beautiful graphics, like hot takes on each of these cases, like Tom Girardi and Erica. Mm-hmm. And then at the top of the page, they have all these like little um, stories you can go through, like the Manzos on New Jersey, um, Jen huh. Shah on Utah. They're following that one really closely. So the Bravo docket. Mm-hmm. Okay. 
I will check that out. Fun. Thank you. Yeah. One last comment about Bravo, which is, I know that it's been over for a few months, but I finally, finally am finishing the current season or the most recent season of Atlanta. Oh. Did you finish it? Yeah, yeah. They are knocking it out of the park this the season. And it was a like, great season. Pinnacle, like truly some of the best episodes I've ever seen they on were, television. I'm so glad you got I told you you had to get caught up because this Ugh. was a wild Portia oh. is like evolved into her yes. final form. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and Latoya is a loose cannon maniac i just don't know what to like i i love her being on the show because she just like lights things on fire and walks away but she is out of control oh my gosh and she is like she reminds me of early brandy on beverly hills you know yes very much yes love her did you get to the halloween episode yet Oh, I sure did, where she uh, is dressed like a Medusa and chases after LaToya with a golf club. <laughs> oh my god. <laughs> Which, to be fair, LaToya walked in and from minute one was being a giant asshole. Total monster. To- yeah. What do you think of uh, Drew? Boring. Next. I agree with you. I kind of feel like, eh, whatever at this point. And after the reunions, I'm like, so over Drew. I was screaming when Drew brought the like cassette player <gasps> with like this leaked audio. I was like, this is next level drama. I am here for it. I love it. And then it revealed absolutely nothing. And everybody was like, you're a fucking idiot. I loved that everyone reacted that way. I was <laughs> so happy that everyone was like, wait, where, what are we, what is this? Who cares? She really about thought the, she the had a gotcha thing. moment. <laughs> that profit storyline. Goodbye. Well, Anything else before we <laughs> get into our podcast? Um, not really. Oh, I wanted to just give a quick shout out to some music I've been listening to lately. Not shout out, okay. but recommend people should listen to these people. Um, Julia Wolf. Okay. Her song that I really, really like is called In My Way. Hmm. Okay. And she seems to have gotten herself like famous in the same way that a lot of these young people have lately, like Billie Eilish online. So... Good for Ooh, her. Speaking of which, you told me to listen to her new stuff, and I really like it. Oh, good. Good. Yeah. Oh, I'm glad you like it. She was actually also featured in To Live and Die in LA season two. Her and Phineas both get interviewed because they happen to have a strange connection to the the Whoa. victim. Weird. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Really weird. Wow. Full circle here. <laughs> and then uh, the other music artist, it's a little group of three uh, three folks. Their name is Bonnie Parker, named after Bonnie Parker from Bonnie and Clyde. Okay. And it's they're queer and they sing music that is relatable to LGBTQ people, I think. Got it. But the song Jason is the one I heard first. And then now I'm like on like a little bit of a deep dive. Cute. I'll check it out after this. Yeah. But that's it. Just some positive things I've been listening to lately that I really like. I've been listening to a lot of like 1960s pop and uh, kind of like soul music for mm-hmm. some reason recently. Like I've been listening to a lot of Aretha Franklin and Dusty Springfield. And, Ooh, I love I Dusty know, Springfield. I've gotten into a, a retro vibe lately. Nice. All right. Should we get into the episode? We absolutely should. Okay. I forgot to write down the title of this episode. Oh, I did for you. It's called Thank the, you. the Fertile Fields. The Fertile Fields. Okay. So item number one, we open on beat cops, which means I have now gotten my eight beat cop, beat cop openings. You have. I just added it for you. 
All right. So <laughs> the beat cops, like one of them is, I don't know, getting some coffee from a shop or something and, and heading back to the patrol car where his partner is. And they're complaining about how cold it is. And they also go on this weird, disparaging comments rant about Native Americans. Oh, Very strange. Yeah. Um, and then they spot four black teens running out of an alley. And they're kind of like, whoa, what's that? And go look in the alleyway and they see smoke. And when they investigate, it's a burned body. Yikes. So, Logan and Soretta arrive at the scene. And we hear that the person who was killed was probably dead before they were burned because the person's body was found badly beaten. And they do manage to get a shoe print at the scene. So they have some kind of evidence. The victim's name is Ezra Shore. And... They mentioned that he was wearing a yarmulke, so immediately Logan and Soretta are kind of like, okay, this is a Jewish man that's been killed, maybe this is a hate crime, not sure, but we get the title sequence, and my garden was looking a little dusty, so I decided to go and polish each rock in my garden by hand with a Q-tip. <laughs> and it's looking great now, and I finished just in time for the title sequence to end, and we're back. When you said your garden was dusty, I was like, do you have plastic plants in a garden somewhere? Imagine. So we're back in the station. And again, they're debating whether or not this was a hate crime. Logan is, of course, like these four black kids are to blame. They ran away from the scene. Clearly it's them. Clearly it's a hate crime. Mm-hmm. Cragen, on the other hand, is like, maybe we should actually do some investigation before we just blame these four black kids who happen to be around at this moment. So they send him off to, you know, do their jobs of being detectives <laughs> and investigate Mr. Shore's family and friends. So Cragen's like, go investigate his family and friends. And then the next scene we get is Logan and Soretta at the medical examiner's office. Like, so you're ignoring that yeah right recommendation but okay so the emmy essentially tells them that mr shore was definitely dead before he was set on fire he was hit multiple times and he did have defensive wounds including um, some blood under his fingernails but it's not enough to do dna so logan goes and talks to the shore family and the wife says that she spoke with ezra on the phone at six o'clock the night before and he told her, go ahead and eat dinner without me. I'm going to be working late with Isaac, who is his brother. They own a jewelry business together. I think Ezra owns it. And Isaac is kind of like the family fuck up who mm. got a job with his brother, essentially. Yeah, seems that way. Okay. So Logan asks the wife, like, was business good? Like, is there a chance there were cash flow problems that, you know, caused this to happen? And she's like, no, my brother or my husband did very well at his business. And so Logan asks, do you have any idea who could have been responsible for this? And she kind of hesitates, but the older son, whose name is Caleb, says, there was a group of black kids who used to bother him and his brother, but, quote, it's probably nothing. And the mom says, like, no, the police should know everything, Caleb, tell them. So he basically says that there was this group of black kids who had been hassling him and his brother periodically, and uh, he thinks that they might have committed the murder. Logan asks if Ezra might have had any jewels from the store on him, like kind of pursuing a robbery angle. And the wife doesn't know, so she says, go check with Isaac, he would know. They interview the brother at the jewelry store, and he says, we were doing inventory together until about eight, 
we had a disagreement over some purchase orders and I said some things I regret, but you know, I, I didn't know it was going to be the last time I was seeing him. Mm-hmm. Logan asks, is it possible that he would have carried jewels on him and that could have been a motive for the attack? And Isaac says like, yeah, he, he carried jewels on him pretty regularly, if he, especially if he had business afterwards or in the morning. So he goes and checks the logbook and sees that his brother Ezra had checked out about $12,000 worth of jewelry um, of gems. And I think it's like rubies and sapphires because I feel like they keep saying rubies and sapphires throughout the entire episode. They say rubies and sapphires so much. So much. It's like I'm at a gemstone convention. (laughs) (laughs) Did you ever watch Steven Universe? Oh my god, I love Steven Universe. So good. Oh my god, I find myself just singing the theme song at random points of the day. (laughs) I forget how it goes. They are the crystal gems. Oh, that's right. (laughs) Duh, of course. All right, so... The brother says, like, it's not uncommon that he would have had this amount of jewelry on him and he would have been walking with them in his briefcase. They find out by checking into some leads that the that Ezra had been using a car service and he had used a car the night of his murder. And so they go and check the records and see that it took him to the Wendell building from his uh, jewelry store. So they go to the Wendell building and, and kind of look at the classic you know, list of businesses that rent spaces in this building. And they eliminate most of them. And then they see that on the top floor is another jeweler. And so they think, okay, maybe this is a connection. So let's go talk to him. That jeweler's name is Joe Tajin. That's how I'm going to say it. <laughs> okay. He's, they go and talk to him. He says like, oh, Ezra's dead. He was such a sweet man, blah, blah, blah. And Sarita asks um, if he had had a meeting scheduled with Ezra that night. And he says, a meeting? No. A battle? Yes. You don't just talk to Ezra, sure. You butt heads. So essentially, he tells the story that they were negotiating over jewelry and that Ezra left with, I think at this point, it's emeralds and sapphires, but it honestly, it does not matter, <laughs> listeners. I'm just going to say random gems the rest of the time. Rose quartz, opal. Rose quartz, turquoise. <laughs> Pearl. <laughs> so... They ask if he said where he was going to be going after, and uh, Tajin says that he called his car service, but he couldn't get through, and so he just said to Tajin that he would hail a cab on the corner, and Tajin at this point is like, um, and not to be crude, I know he's dead and you're investigating his murder, but the jewels he took with him haven't been paid for, so I still need to get my money for those. Right on top of that, Rose. <laughs> right. <laughs> so on the street, Logan and Soretta talk about how Shore would have had over $25,000 of jewels on him. And Logan thinks that the the killers were probably after him, not after the jewels. And Soretta says like, okay, well, whatever the motive, that doesn't really matter because if we can find the jewels, then we find the killer. So they check with the local pawn shops. No sapphires, no rubies, no diamonds have shown up. And... Cragen talks to them and says, hey, um, did the murdered victim, Ezra, did he have a son named Caleb? And they're like, yeah, he did. And he goes, um, he's in a holding cell for doing a number, quote, on some homeboy's face. Mm-hmm. They use that term a lot in this episode, by the way. They sure do. So they go and talk to him and ask why he went after the kid. Why did he attack this young black man? And he says that it's one of the kids who bothered him before and... They're, they're kind of not getting the information they need out of him and tell him that, hey, we have people who say that you attacked this young man without any provocation. 
And Caleb says, well, like, what do you want? This is the guy who killed dad. And he explains that he heard it, like, gossip all over the neighborhood about him having killed, his name is Reggie, by the way, Reggie having killed Ezra and, like, laughing about him being dead. And Logan's like, okay, well, bragging about it and laughing about it is not the same thing as actually killing him. But the kid says that Reggie had told him that, quote, he likes burning and that, quote, he, meaning Caleb, was next. And it's like, so what do you want me to do? So they go interview Reggie. He tells them, I didn't kill Ezra. But while they're in Reggie's apartment, they take a picture of Reggie and go track down the beat cops who had uh, discovered the body to see, do you recognize him as one of the four young black men who ran away? And they don't know it. They don't remember enough to have gotten a good look at him. But they say like, hey, there's a deli around the corner. And sometimes we see a a bunch of kids kind of hanging out there. So why don't you go talk to the deli owner? I mean, so, weird connection to try to make. Weird connection. Yeah. Yeah. So the guy said, but magically in Law and Order world, it <laughs> turns out to actually be helpful. Of course. Because the deli owner does know Reggie, but he says, I didn't see him the morning of the murder. Uh, but he does tell the cops that later on he heard Reggie admit to it, but is like kind of like, he was bragging. Like he admitted to that along with 25 other things, basically saying that Reggie wanted street cred. He didn't actually do it. But Logan and Soretta take this as, like, good enough evidence to go and pick up Reggie. He's a clout chaser. Yes. (laughs) So they decide to go get a warrant to search Reggie's apartment and to get his shoes to see if they match the prints at the scene. And when they go to get his shoes, Reggie, like, doesn't want to give them up because they're nice shoes. And so they're like, all right, why don't you come down to the station with us and we can print your shoes and you don't have to, like, let them out of your eyesight. So they do that, and a shoe print expert shows Logan and Soretta the two prints and says that the print left at the scene is from a walker who, quote, overpronates, which the only reason I know that word is because for a minute, I wore those stupid toe shoes. Do you remember the toe shoes? Yes, yes. (laughs) And that was like some selling point was like it corrects pronation. I don't know. I I used to manage a footwear department, so I used to have to talk about pronation all the time. Oh my gosh, look at you. Yeah, most people overpronate, so that's not really compelling evidence. Okay. (laughs) So the print from the alley and Reggie's print both show patterns of overpronating. But he's like, it's not enough information to say, like, this is a match. But Soretta says, well, Reggie doesn't know that. So they take the prints to interrogation and basically are like, look, Reggie, we know that these prints match. We know you were there at the murder. And Reggie's like, you're only hassling me because I'm black, which, yes. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Beretta shows him the prints, and he's like, look at these. These are the same. It proves you were in the alley at the time of the murder. And Logan has a really great line where he says, it proves you stepped in something, Reg, and it smells real bad, and it's not going away. God. Dick Tracy here. (laughs) Very Dick Tracy. Sad discount Dick Tracy. So... Soretta asks if Reggie killed Ezra for the jewels, and Logan says, or is it because he was Jewish? And Reggie says, listen, I was in the deli buying cigarettes at the time, quote, I didn't know it was going down. And so they kind of like catch on to that and are like, you knew it like went down, you knew other people were there. So they kind of like hassle him into giving up the names of who did it. And Reggie gives them three names, Fontaine, Cyrus, and Harley. And he says that he came out of the store and they were lighting him on fire. So, like, he showed up 
as they were had already killed him, body on fire. And Logan and Soretta kind of imply that they don't believe that he wasn't involved. And Reggie's like, I just watched. I didn't have anything against Ezra. I didn't do anything. And so Soretta's like, oh, so Fontaine did have something against Ezra. And Reggie says, yeah, essentially that they had told Ezra to like go back where he came from. So Cragen says, wait a minute. You said you saw them beat him in the alley, but they know that there was no blood in the alley. So essentially this had to have happened elsewhere and Reggie isn't telling the truth in some way. So Logan still wants to pin it on him despite the kind of incorrect state information that he gave in his statement. So Cragen goes and talks to the DAs and DA Schiff kind of wonders if the blood was on the garbage that burned because like I guess garbage was put on top of his body before he was set on fire and he tells Ben bring it to a jury like I want this I want an indictment and Stone is like we have such circumstantial evidence at this point we will lose very easily and Schiff basically is like do it anyway we need to look like our office is doing something because essentially what we learn is that uh, the DA's office is getting kind of pressure from both from the Jewish community and the black community to like fix the situation. Mm-hmm. So the police go and arrest the other three boys that Reggie had given up and bring them to a pretrial hearing where they're each charged with murder in the second and their bail is set at $100,000. Their defense attorney meets with Stone and Robinette and basically points out you have no case. And actually, her character was good. I actually looked her up to see like, oh, is she going to be a recurring public defender? But she's not, which is a uh. shame because she like came in and was like, you have no evidence. You have no witnesses. My people have alibis. Like, this is going to fall apart. I know. I liked her. I liked her a lot. She says, if you push this case, you're going to be facing a civil rights case against the city. At this moment, Stone gets a phone call and Isaac, the brother of Ezra Shore, the murder victim, and his lawyer want to meet with Stone prior to the grand jury hearing. And we learn basically that Isaac will testify, but he needs immunity from anything else incriminating that he might say as part of his testimony, because supposedly the issue is that taxes weren't paid on some of the jewels in question, and so he doesn't want to implicate himself in that as part of his testimony that was so confusing to me that part it was really strange i don't understand that kind of shit (laughs) yeah taxes on jewelry really honestly so on the stand stone interviews tashin the other jewelry store guy as well as isaac and caleb and all of them kind of like reiterate the same stories we've heard so far and uh, caleb says that the the black kids who used to hassle him like would call him jewish slurs And when they get Reggie on the stand, he tells the same story that he saw his friends in the alley and saw them light Ezra on fire. But this is now kind of the third time he's sort of like changed details in the story because Stone is like, hold up, wait a minute. You previously testified that you saw them beating him. But he changed his story to say like, oh, no, I only saw them light him on fire. And I only told anybody that I did it because I wanted street cred. Unreal. So Stone says, at this point, they have to pull the case because the uh, essentially the, their main witness perjured himself. Mm-hmm. 
the DAs have kind of a weird conversation at this point that, again, like, is pitting the Black community against the Jewish community. And they're talking about dropping the case, but Isaac, Ezra's brother, is kind of, like, pushing them to—he actually, his lawyer files a motion to get the case reinstated. I forgot to say, by the way, the the lawyer, uh, Isaac's lawyer, is the dad from Everybody Loves Raymond. Yeah, oh, uh, what's his name? Uh, Jerry— Oh, no, I'm sorry. Not dad from Seinfeld. Everybody from loves Seinfeld, Raymond. Dad right? from Seinfeld. Yeah. He was also the dad on um, King of Queens. Jerry. Really? Oh, my gosh. Jerry Stiller. Jerry Stiller. Uh, phew. Is he Ben Stiller's dad? I think he is related to Ben Stiller, but I don't know if it's his dad. Let me look. Um. Oh, yeah. He's, he's Ben Stiller's dad. Huh. How funny. So... Isaac thinks that there's been prosecutorial misconduct and that a George, that a judge is going to force them to release the transcripts of the hearing where they're, where Reggie perjured himself. And, and they kind of badger him into wanting to see these, these transcripts because they're accusing him of having just like dropped the case because of pressure from the Black Caucus. Mm -hmm. So Stone's like, I'm... Transcripts of grand jury hearings are supposedly sealed, so he's annoyed at this request. But finally, he caves and says, you can read the transcripts, but you can only do it in my office. Like, essentially, you're not taking the transcripts with you, and you're not sharing them with anyone else. On the street, Robinette kind of questions why they want the transcripts, and maybe it's because, quote, the real killer wants to see them. And maybe this case is about greed and money, not about race, as some of the uh, folks have kind of indicated. Who to thank it? Right? So they decide to look at the brothers' financials, which again, that would have been pretty early in my investigation, because I feel like you start at the center and work your way out, not like grab random witnesses and stuff. So- I don't know. I'm, I'm not a detective, but... Wouldn't you look yeah. into the financials of the of the victim of a violent crime, especially if they worked in an industry like jewelry? Yes. Yes. And they were carrying like 25 grand worth of jewels on them. Yes. That would be one of the first things I would look into. <laughs> Yikes. So they check into the brother's books and essentially find that he bought $900,000 worth of diamonds that they didn't insure, which they are like, why would you buy almost a million dollars worth of diamonds that you didn't insure? And they kind of dig around a little bit and essentially find that Isaac was skimming money off the business, essentially stealing from his brother, which gives him both motive and opportunity to have killed Ezra. So they meet with him and Stone says, we know you didn't do this alone. We know that you're involved that you're involved in this, but we know that somebody else is as well, and we need you to give that person up. His attorney is like, this is ridiculous. You have nothing. But Isaac stops him and is like, let me talk to my lawyer in private. So Robinette and Stone leave the room. And after 20 minutes, they kind of let them back in. And the lawyer says, Stone, remember, you gave him immunity from anything relating to this because of his testimony. So whatever he says, you can't touch him. And so Stone is like, okay, yes. And then Isaac says, I did it. I killed Ezra and I did it alone. Wow. Which, again, he apparently has immunity from that in exchange for testimony, which seems wildly stupid to have done right that's the plan that's the right. plan. give immunity to a murder suspect right because they couldn't rule anybody out but they had such laser focus on these young black kids i feel like mm-hmm. so stone says you know this is a mistake i know you didn't do this alone you're protecting someone 
And Isaac says, believe what you want, it's what happened. So again, they kind of dig further into his financial records, and they find out that the uninsured diamonds, the $900,000 he had bought, were bought from Joseph Tajin, the other jeweler. Okay, they explain some money things, and I'm just going to, like, Cliff's note it for you. Essentially, Tajin is laundering money, and he got Isaac to help him launder money through his brother's jewelry business. And so Robinette thinks, like, none of these diamonds or any of these jewels are even real. Like, this is just money being laundered. And he discovers that they are laundering over $4 million worth of cash a year. Ooh. Which... I feel like that would be close to like 8 or 12 million at this point. In today's money? So that's a lot. In today's money. <laughs> so they go back to and talk to Isaac and tell him, if you don't agree to work with us, everything you have, all of your money, will be lost as a result of the racketeering charges we're going to bring against you. So he agrees to help. And on the stand, he says that he, again, was kind of like the family fuck up. He wasn't earning enough money. And he felt like he needed to provide better for his family. And so Joseph Tajin, when he approached him to help him launder money, he was like, okay, yeah, I can do this. My brother Ezra won't know about it. It'll be fine. But his brother found out eventually and was furious and demanded he stop immediately. But this is when we find out on the stand from Isaac, essentially that Tajin had been blackmailing him, threatening him into continuing to launder the money Isaac had wanted out a long time ago. Mm-hmm. And essentially what we find out is that Ezra found out and uh, was like, please stop, you know, da-da-da-da, can't get out. And so Ezra decides to go talk to Tajin himself. Isaac follows him. And so they're both at Tajin's shop. And things kind of get out of hand, apparently. And Tajin takes a cane and beats Ezra to death with it. And Isaac says, I just watched. (laughs) Just hung out. Yeah. So Stone says, why didn't you tell the police? And he says that I was scared. Uh, You know, I I didn't know if I was going to get in trouble for this. I made up the story about the young black boys. And Tajin had threatened my family and said that he would kill my children if I didn't keep laundering his money. So the defense attorney comes up and essentially kind of tries to plant the idea in the jury's head that Isaac had means and motive, and he's been lying all along the way. And so he's essentially trying to cast probable doubt on the accusation that Tajin alone killed Ezra. So (laughs) he says to Ezra, or says to Isaac on the stand, the truth is, if it weren't for you, your brother would still be alive today. Isn't that right, Mr. Shore? And <laughs> as Isaac says the word yes in the weirdest voice I've ever heard, you know when you get like a water bubble stuck in your throat? Mm-hmm. It was like that meets us like Skeksky from <laughs> The Dark Crystal. Like it was a weird like chirpy bark. So the DA team is worried that the jury will have reasonable doubt with Isaac having lied multiple times. And then we get literally like several minutes of unnecessarily long-winded closing statements from both (laughs) the defense attorney and Stone, which I think are kind of meant to make up for the like sloppy storytelling they've done so far. (laughs) I I also was like, when they showed that the last scenes were going to be these like closing statements, I was like, these better be good. And I was like, oh, oh, okay. Huh. (laughs) so the jury does come back not guilty and the court kind of erupts some people really happy some people really angry out on the stone steps robinette 
and Stone are talking and they're having a conversation about what like drives men to do the things they do. And Robinette says, my father thinks everything is motivated by fear. And Stone says, my father thinks everything is motivated by greed. And Robinette says, so what about Isaac? And Stone says, I think he got both. And then we get a gunshot and we like swipe, like slide over, camera scoots over to show a different part of the kind of courthouse. And we see that Isaac has just shot and killed Tajan. And that's the end of the episode. So jarring. So jarring. They just look on with no resolution. I kind of was like, oh, they haven't ended an episode this way so far. That was fun. Yeah, it was It was definitely the most dramatic part of the episode, and it, I wish it had happened in the middle of it. <laughs> okay, yes, agreed. So I, while I was writing the end notes to this and kind of like writing down Robinettes, because you know how they end, they have to end every episode with some kind of like poor, poorly phrased platitude or mm-hmm. like weird philosophical conversation. Mm-hmm. It's usually Robinette and, uh, and Stone on and the Stone. stairs outside the courthouse or in some kind of very brown room. <laughs> yes. So I came up with what I think could be a fun game. And if you don't like this, you can edit it out. But what if each episode we came up with an alternative stupid line for Stone and Robinette's closing? Oh, that's fun. <laughs> okay. All right. Let's try to do that for next time. If it's not Stone and Robinette closing the episode, we'll just pick whoever did close the episode and, and do it. <laughs> and do it. Try to do it in their voice. Yeah. Okay. Perfect. Oh, boy. Well, that was the episode. Oh, good job. Thanks. It, it wasn't It wasn't too bad. It wasn't my favorite, but it wasn't terrible. It had its yeah. peaks and valleys. Yeah. We'll talk about it later. Yes. So this episode was based on the Crown Heights riots of 1991. Oh, I don't know if I've heard this story. Mm, well, you're about to. Okay. Um, there are several words that are either in Hebrew or that are like just colloquialisms in the Jewish community that I might mispronounce. Okay. And a lot of names. So I'm going to do my very best. I looked up a good portion of them, but I, I apologize if I uh, missed a few. Gotcha. I should know some of them. We did go to a half-Jewish church for so many years. I should I should know some of these. <laughs> <laughs> um, okay. So, to set the scene a little bit, it is August of 1991 in the Crown Heights section of Brooklyn. Um, okay. Crown Heights is like a neighborhood. I know we always talk about how these <laughs> things are broken up. So, you know, there's New York State. There is New York City. <laughs> <laughs> Brooklyn is a uh, borough. Of New York. Is the borough the same thing as like a suburb? I know like su- I know suburbs are like the residential areas, but is it kind of like the same thing? Like it it doesn't no. mean a whole lot other than sort of like indicating a general area. It indicates a general area, so it's like indicating a community, but it's you know each borough has its own like borough president and all these things. So it, it is more okay. than just sort of like names okay. given, and they're far larger than they're more like large counties there's counties they're, within the um within the boroughs the boroughs that's how big so they are. they're kind of like baby cities New, this is direct from wikipedia new york city is compi- composed of five boroughs da, 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 da. each new york borough city. is ex- co-extensive with a respective county of the new york state ah okay i didn't know that so they are co-extensive with a county I that don't understand important. why New York had to make this so challenging. Let's see. It was... <laughs> yeah, I don't know why they did this either, but... 
Anyway, it's in Brooklyn. Okay. A very, very large, one of the largest boroughs of New York City. Okay. Okay. Just look at a map. <laughs> Listen, you you said that there were cities within boroughs, but then you said Brooklyn is a borough within New York City. Okay, there are communities with. I guess that's better. There are communities within the boroughs. You're right. Okay. Communities within the boroughs, and Crown Heights is a community of Brooklyn. So it's like a section of Brooklyn community. Great. Moving on. <laughs> I'm editing almost all of that out. No. Um, <laughs> so Crown Heights is around this time divided into two different neighborhoods within it. Wow, we're really getting deep. Um, so just think of it as Northern Crown Heights and Southern Crown Heights. I think that's what I they're like sort of I feel like I'm relearning the anatomy of a human cell. Like the. <laughs> I feel like we're doing one of those things where we're going, we're like, just keep on zooming in. <laughs> yes. Oh, God. Okay. I was trying to think of, like, any part of a cell. Like, isn't there a something reticulum? Don't... You're asking the wrong the <laughs> wrong person here. <laughs> okay, great. Go ahead. All right. So, all we really need to know... All we really need to know for this is that we're in Crown Heights, and it's within Brooklyn, and there are, it's divided into Northern Crown Heights and Southern Crown Heights. Okay. It's divided by an Eastern Parkway, and the Northern area is predominantly black, and the southern area is also mostly black. The whole area is, but there's a very high concentration of Hasidic Jews in the southern area. Okay. There's a long-standing and very well-known documented feeling of racial tension in this area at this time. Mm. A lot of unrest. Okay. Um, the area was once almost predominantly all black, and then the residents had started to feel that their neighborhood was being, like, quote-unquote, bought out and gentrified. Oh, okay. And that the Hasidic Jewish community was sort of taking over, and because they had all this money, there was nothing they could do to stop it. Gotcha. Now, there's no words of, like, anything that they're necessarily doing other than buying up property, but it just is, it's a tense in the area. Yeah, for sure. Um, as early as 1976, black folks in Crown Heights had felt that police were giving preferential treatment to Jews over them. Another criticism at the time that led to more disparity between the two communities was that there was the allegation that Jewish, Jewish folks were taking advantage of the disparity in the black community at the time, and they were using it to earn political leadership. So on August 19th, 1991, 38-year-old Carmel Cato is outside his house or his apartment in in Brooklyn on President Street. And his son is playing outside, riding his bike up and down the street with his cousin. So he's got, he's just watching his seven-year-old son, Gavin, and his seven-year-old niece, Angela. They're kind of just playing around. He tells them to stay close by because he wants to keep an eye on them while he's outside. It's a nice day. It's summertime. Um, at the same time, there's a motorcade coming down a street that crosses with President Street, which they're on. And it's in, it's like a procession, that a procession for, and I'm going to mispronounce this name so terribly, but I'm going to try it. Uh, his title is Rebbe, which is similar to Rabbi. We'll get into that in a moment. And it's Menachem Mendel Schneerson. Great job. Thank you. I think that's probably the closest I'll get. Um, I don't know if I'm saying the word Rebbe right. It's R-E-B-B-E. -B -B -E. Okay. And it's a term that can, can refer to a rabbi, and it's more common, and in this sense... Um, to refer to a 
spiritual leader of the Hasidic movement. Um, I just did a little internet pronunciation thing and it said it's Rebbe. Oh, thank you. Rebbe. That makes, that sounds way better. <laughs> Rebbe! <laughs> okay, so the motorcade is for a movement known as Shabbat in the Jewish faith. And uh-huh. I looked it up a little bit, but it seems really complicated. <laughs> and it's for supporting Jewish communities and outreach programs and all things like that. It's still going on right now. So, okay. That's what this was in honor of. It's think about like when the Pope comes to town for some sort of, you know, meeting. Okay. It's gotcha. their kind of version of that. So it wasn't a big deal. There were only three cars in the motorcade and the first one was an unmarked police car, but they had their like lights flashing on top. Mm-hmm. And then the other two were just one with the Rebbe and then a car behind it. And it was around 8.20 p.m. The first two cars passed through the light on Utica and President. And in an attempt to not lose them, the third vehicle, driven by 22-year-old Yosef Lifsch, he either drove through a yellow light or ran a red light. It's still not known to this day. Oh, wow. And okay. he was struck by a vehicle on Utica. This caused his car to veer onto the sidewalk where it hit a stone pillar or a structure of a similar kind of build to a stone pillar. And it's believed at this time that the pillar pinned both seven-year-old children against an iron gate. No. Mm Mm-hmm. It would later be said by Lifsch that his car actually continued after hitting the wall and also struck the children. Oh, oof. The initial account by him was that he tried to first, once once this happened, he gets out of the car and tries to lift the car off of the kids. But others say that he was actually being beaten pretty badly by a lot of black pedestrians and onlookers that were believed to be residents of the area that had seen the, the whole thing happen. So there's some people saying he got out and tried to help the kids and others saying that didn't happen, but he was being assaulted by folks. Yeah, a lot of people say that when they got there, he was just being beaten up. So how could he have been trying to help? Gotcha. Okay. So there's a lot of conflicting reports of this in articles from the time, but as the story goes goes on and more information comes out, um, and after the investigation, because there is a full investigation into all of this, it seems that both are kind of true. Mm-hmm. So most accounts that I see that are more current, um, they say that Lifsch initially did try to get out of the vehicle and help you know, get the car off of the kids, mm-hmm. but he was really, really quickly seized by witnesses and attacked. Hmm. Okay. The event was definitely what began the following sequence of events, which will be known as the Crown Heights Riots. Okay. But many would argue that this specific detail I'm about to share is what caused the tension to really explode. Um, Sorry, remind me one more time of the year. This is uh, 1991, and it's 8.20 p.m. when the car hits the the kids. Okay, thanks. So at 8.23... The, and I'm going to, I'm going to try this one too. Hatzala, it's H-A-Z-O-L-A-H. It's either hot. I'm probably just putting the emphasis, emphasis on the wrong part of the word. <laughs> um, at 8.23 p.m., the Hatzala Ambulance Corps, followed by the NYPD and the city ambulance, arrive on the scene. In that order. The Hatzala are a, um, they're, what they are is the Volunteer Ambulance Corps that's been around for a long time, and they're found primarily and run primarily in Jewish communities. So the first vehicle is that Hatzalah Ambulance Corps. It gets there within three minutes of the event, and they're instructed by police to take Lifsch to the hospital for his safety. Lifsch mm. is the driver of the vehicle who is um, allegedly being beaten. Okay. As they take him, Gavin, seven-year-old Gavin, 
is still being removed from under the station wagon. And Angela, the other seven-year-old girl, is still being attended to Mm. as the person in the car is being brought to the ambulance and brought to the Mm. hospital Mm. for his safety. Okay. Gavin was taken by the city ambulance to the hospital afterwards, and he was pronounced dead at 8.32 p.m. Mm. A second Hatzala ambulance attended to Angela. They came right after the city ambulance, and they took her to the hospital. She sustained many injuries, including losing a portion of her ear, but she Mm. does survive. Oh, good. Yeah. It's reported by several publications that when the ambulance takes Lifsch away, tensions exploded. And, you know, there were already a lot of people there fighting and arguing and, and screaming at, the, at what had happened and trying to help the kids. Right. And when they, when people that were there, when the residents of Crown Heights saw Lifsch being taken away while the kids were not being, being attended, attended to and in, in yeah. their, it, not being perceived as being attended to, right. everything went really insane. And then this okay. is when tensions explode and we start to hear phrases being reported. So phrases such as, quote, kill the Jews... Things like that are what are being screamed, and it's in every newspaper, every article has, this is the kinds of things that are, the epithets that are being screamed. There's chaos in the streets, and newspapers put out headlines afterwards that say things like, Hasidisms and blacks clash, and a boy's death ignites clashes in Crown Heights. And as youths and adults alike are taking to the streets, tossing bottles, breaking things, breaking into residences, getting into fights... Many people are also taking their vehicles and trying to run down Jewish folks and police officers alike. Holy shit. Mm -hmm. This goes on throughout the evening for the next three hours. um, And then the next day, things only get worse. So legitimately, it was like bumper cars, Mm -hmm. but like all over the neighborhood. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Some of the, I read a lot of statistics that were varying, so I don't know if I included them in the episode, but there were like... I believe there were two fatalities total through the riots. Okay. And there are hundreds of um, injuries. injuries. There are hundreds of arrests. Uh, it's, it's, It's wild. Wow. So this is now the next day. It's the 20th of August, 1991. Things get really bad. Outlets at the time are saying that at, in the morning, 500 black folks, mostly teenage and some not even residents of Crown Heights, gathered at the site where the accident happened and where Gavin lost his life, lost his life the night before and set fire to three vehicles, including police cars, and began throwing rocks into people's homes and businesses and looting Jewish-owned businesses. One sign that was left at the site of the killing reads, and I'm going to try to, I'm reading from a picture, so bear with me because the handwriting is, it's handwriting. <laughs> Um, so it says, where, 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 where at the top. And then under it, it says, where is the white Jewish man who was taken away in the special ambulance, unhandcuffed and escorted by the New York's, by the New York police department's finest while the baby was lying dead under his car, question mark, with his bicycle and his cousin pinned to the wall. Um, and then it has the, the location of the event. And there's just question marks like drawn all over the sign. Hmm. So, People are outraged and incensed by all of this, of course. And yeah. uh, a, a lot of reports I read about the different crimes that were happening that were reported and, and seemed to be true were there were some Jewish families that said that people were breaking into their houses and attacking them. Mm. One man called the police and he does, there's a 911 recording of him 
Um, I didn't hear it, but I read the transcript of him just shouting, saying, they broke into my house, they're hitting my wife. I don't know what to do. There's a gang of, of people in my house attacking my wife. Damn. Yeah. So this morning uh, on the 20th, 29-year-old Australian student Yankel or Yankel Rosenbaum was mobbed by a group of about 20 young black men and was attacked, being stabbed multiple times during the attack and beaten. On his way to the hospital, he identifies 16-year-old Lemrick Nelson Jr. as the assailant, but unfortunately, later that evening, he dies as a result of his stab wounds. Mm. Uh, I read this in one article, but it is corroborated later on, that the stab wound that ultimately killed him was one to the chest that went unnoticed at the hospital. Ah, damn. Mm -hmm. Rioting would continue to go on for a total of three days before police are finally able to seize control on August 22nd, and a total of 1,800, more than 1,800 police were dispatched over the course of the riots. Wow. Newspapers at the time definitely skewed the story depending on which publication it was, um, who they had political affiliations with, and what neighborhoods they were being put out in. Yeah. Um, either the newspapers were reporting that the black community was being ignored by law enforcement in favor of Jews living in the area, or that the Jewish community was being targeted by the riots and they were calling the event a pogrom. Have you heard that word before? Pogrom? Yeah. Yes. Okay. I had never heard that word before, so I'm glad you know how to say it. (laughs) Um, So for those of you who are like me who have never heard this term, the word gets thrown around a lot for what this was. And from what I can read is that pogrom is supposed to refer to a violent riot aimed to massacre or break up ethnic or religious groups, specifically Jewish people. Mm Mm-hmm. So the thing about pogroms is that they're supposed to have government involvement in some way um, or empirical involvement from where the word comes from. And so the mayor at the time, David Dinkins, who is a black New York citizen, the first black mayor of New York City, he is highly incensed by this term because Mm. not only does it suggest that he is an anti-Semite, but it also insinuates that there is um, government involvement on his end or that he, he somehow was involved in this... You could that look at he it as like a hate sanctioned crime. it basically, right? Um, so he dismisses this term and is very vocal about it. And since then, in the years to come, many, many, many others have dismissed this term, um, including members of the American Jewish Congress and many other renowned figures in the Jewish community. At the time, though, it was a very useful tool for people who wanted to use it against. Mayor Dinkins. Right. So Rudy Giuliani, when he runs in 2003, uses the term a lot, a lot. Oh, as a way to kind of discredit his competitor. Mm-hmm. Speaking Ugh, politics. <laughs> d- disgusting. So much politics in this that I only skim the surface of because <laughs> I can't. So speaking of Dinkins, he has heavily been criticized for his approach to the riots from the jump by, by everybody, not only by his opponents. Okay. He initially decides that the best tactic is to kind of lay back Um, and not sort of agitate agitate there you go that works so he doesn't want to agitate the situation by a a high police presence at the time but it didn't work obviously and everyone kind of saw that it wasn't working right away and so when he finally does take action and get police presence out there it's not enough they have to keep redeploying people that another uh, one accusation that comes against Dinkins a lot at the time was that he was letting the community quote-unquote vent that he was letting the black community vent out their angers on purpose. Mm. He vehemently denies this, and 
1992 600-page report called the Gurgenti or Gurgenti report comes out in uh, early 1993, which which investigates the entire situation from the car accident up to the riots and then everything that comes from that. Wow. It's doesn't it does agree that the mayor was not intent on letting the community vent. There's no evidence of that. Okay. But it does attribute a tremendous part of the responsibility for the riots to his lack of action. Hmm. Even in retrospect, he says um he has said that he regrets these decisions that he made at the time. In 1993, Giuliani uses the riots as a big part of his race against Dinkins, and many attribute this event to him winning the election. Mm. So Dinkins only serves, I think, one term as mayor, and um, he accuses Giuliani of race-baiting during the Mm. campaign. Mm. Are we surprised at Rudy Giuliani, though? No, no. At the time, I mean, the the thing about Rudy Giuliani is, is that when I was growing up, I feel like he was revered. Like, he was oh, the mayor during the 9-11 attacks, and I remember people really liked his response, I feel like. Well, I, I don't think know he, what happened. Like, My impression is that a lot of—he kind of came into office around the time that, like, crime rates started to get lower, mm. and he, like, ran his platform on, like, cleaning up Times Square kind of thing. And so I think his, like— yeah, over-policing strategies kind of gave other folks the impression that he was effectively, like, reducing crime and mm-hmm. making New York safer and all that. Right, yeah. So I guess it was just more of a reputation thing. Ultimately, no charges were ever brought against uh, 29-year-old Lifsch, who was the driver of the car that killed the 7-year-old Gavin Cato. Hmm. He says that he believed he had the right of way when he was going and that he was able to go through the yellow light because he believed that because they had a police escort in the front that that was just how it was done. And yeah. that when he was hit, that he tried to swerve and hit the wall intentionally to not hit any pedestrians. Hmm. This decision to not indict him on anything was controversial at the time, but ultimately accepted by most um, as the, it did seem to be an accident by most accounts. Yeah. And the grand jury was pretty diverse. It was composed of 10 black, eight white and five Latinx jurors. And they mm-hmm. all agreed that losing control of a vehicle is not grounds for criminal negligence. Hmm. Nelson, who is uh remember Nelson is the one who's who Rosenbaum had um, identified as ultimately his killer. Nelson pleads not guilty to killing Rosenbaum at a murder trial in 1992. And in that murder trial, He's acquitted of the murder for lack of physical evidence, even though Rosenbaum, who identified him and then passed away from his injuries, identified him on his first try. Yeah. Huh. So it's reported by other evidence that was presented at that trial was that he had a police report that he had a knife on him when he was arrested that had the word killer on it, written on it, Hmm. but Hmm. he didn't have his fingerprints on it. In 1997... They attempt to try him for violating Rosenbaum's civil rights, and the decision is vacated. Hmm. But they retry him again in 2003 for the same thing. So in this trial in 2003, one big difference is that for the first time, Nelson admits to stabbing Rosenbaum. Interesting. He says he did stab him, and he has a lot of remorse for it. But he claims that his actions were not racially motivated. He just got caught up in the moment and, you know, wanted to prove himself and everything was going on and he just wanted to be a part of it. Yeah. 
multiple sources testify that he was screaming anti-Semitic things throughout the riots. And then in the attack, someone says that they heard him say, say, quote, kill the Jews. So that was disputed. In a decision for this trial, which was also controversial, the jury found that he was guilty of violating Rosenbaum's civil rights, but that he was not to be found responsible for Rosenbaum's death. Even Hmm. though two of the stab wounds that were from Nelson were proven to be fatal. Okay. Hmm. Cornell law professor Sherry Korb would attribute this to the jury not disregarding, which they were supposed to, the fact that the Rosenbaum family had filed a wrongful death lawsuit against the hospital. And because that had happened, it, they, the, this law professor believes that the jury had a hard time finding both the hospital and Nelson responsible for the death. Yeah. So he's sentenced because of this to 10 years, um, but he serves time served, or he has time served because he's had other issues with the law, and he's released the following year. So he only has to serve hmm. one year in, in prison for it, and he gets out in 2004. Hmm. Um, you can find a lot of information on a Wikipedia page specifically for him. He's had a few other brushes with the law. He's also been attacked pretty recently, like stabbed. He's wow. he's still with us, but um, yeah, that's all that happens in regards to this case with him. Race relations become incredibly strained, of course, after the attack, and the amount of anti-Semitic rhetoric that was being thrown around is like, I was having such a hard time reading it all. It was. So disgusting, some of the things I that I read. Even worse than things I've said. Um, Al Sharpton is a big uh, character in this, a big, what's this, player in this case. Mm-hmm. Um, he speaks exhaustively at this time in defense of the Kato family and the black community. But even he looks back at his involvement and regrets a lot of the language that he used during the, the media circus. Mm-hmm. He has been attributed throughout the case, and he's been on TV calling the community things like diamond stealers and things like that. Ooh. So oh, he has a lot of regrets about his involvement in this at the time. So there's a case that happens three years after the riots, just before I conclude this part of it, and... It's debated about whether it is related or not, but I, I honestly can't see how it's not, in in my opinion. Okay. Um, okay, so it didn't happen that long after. It happened two weeks after the riot had been controlled on September 5th, 1991. Okay. A gentleman named Anthony Graziozzi. He's uh, Italian, and he, I think, lives in the area, but he's killed while driving his car through his neighborhood. He was at like a mm. traffic stop, or not a traffic stop, he was at a stoplight. Yeah, And it was in the area around where Yankel Rosenbaum had been killed. Okay. Um, allegedly, four men surrounded his car. All of them were black. And one of them shoots and kills him. A lot of people think that this murder happened because he happens to have a very strong resemblance to what Hasidic Jews look like. Okay. He has the same sort of hair as like the traditional oh, like hair yeah. that you would have. He has a long white beard. He dresses in dark colors, and he's in the neighborhood. And okay. so a lot of people believe that this was racially uh, motivated, but the murder was ultimately not treated as a hate crime. Hmm. So I didn't look too much into it. It was just a blurb I seen, I think, on the either on the Wikipedia page or in one article. Mm-hmm. But yeah, just something that gets kind of lumped into this that could or could not be related so Hmm. but some sort of try to find some positive things that came of this (laughs) there are a lot of strides that were immediately made within the community to strengthen race relations um right away after the riots were contained the 
I, I read an article that said like the head of the black community and the Jewish community in Crown Heights have a meeting. And I don't know uh-huh. how those things are determined, like the head of these communities. I guess, I don't know. I don't, I don't really understand don't how these types of things work. But there's a meeting and they, they work really hard in public to um, do speak. They talk at like schools and all these different places around the neighborhood and surrounding neighborhoods to talk about not only what had happened, but to answer questions about each other's race in schools so that people can ask questions openly and have appropriate people to talk to about and dispel myths right. and rumors and things like that. Um, some other things that happen, um, and this is a quote from a web, from one of my sources. It says, Groups like the Crown Heights Mediation Center and Project CARE, C-A-R-E, um, it's an acronym, um, a coalition of community leaders have built community initiatives to bring together the different neighborhoods of Crown Heights. In 2016, to mark the 25-year anniversary of the riot, the community hosted an inaugural festival called One Crown Heights in celebration of unity. The festival also took place again in 2017. Um, Hmm. Also, Norman Rosenbaum, he's the brother of uh, Yankel Rosenbaum, the victim of the... The stabbing victim. He becomes a huge advocate for um, victims' rights in Australia and in the USA. Mm Mm-hmm. He also forms a really long-standing and um, honest relationship with Carmel Cato, the father of seven-year-old Gavin, who was also killed oh. at the riots. And they remain friends until Norman's passing in 2020. And this is from an article. It says, quote, The men said that their friendship set an example to the entire city. One of the two men says in, in an um, interview, You never compare tragedies and losses of life, but when you experience a loss of this magnitude, there's a bond that is created. And the two do a lot of events together to try to, you know, mend, mend fences between the communities as well over the years. Nice. David Dinkins, the first black mayor of New York, he passed away last year at 93. Hmm. Um, he had a lot of great things on his resume as well, but this is always something that has stained his, his whole career. While the ramifications of this riot can still be seen today, there is some hope um, that people are starting to change and that the communities have been able to live together the jewish community was believed to or there was an assumption that many members of the jewish community were going to move out of the area afterwards but right. that never happened the community remained strong um and actually it, it's grown in the years to come and there are tensions in the area still but it's far far different than it was yeah to, and then just to quote um al sharpton like i was going to mention in 2019, he is um, at a speech. He gives a speech to a gathering called Reform Jewish. I think it's an organization. And Sharpton says that, quote, he could have done more to heal than to harm, um, end quote, about the, about the riots. And he recalls receiving a call from Coretta Scott King at the time. And she tells him, quote, sometimes you are tempted to speak to the applause of the crowd rather than the heights of the cause. And you will say mm. cheap things to get cheap applause rather than to high things to raise the nation higher, end quote. And that is what he, he puts forth now and wishes he had done at the time and what, you know, we should be doing ourselves. <laughs> yeah. And uh, that is the, the last piece of information I have about the Crown Hatch riots of 1991. Wow, I had never heard that story. Me neither. I really had no no clue about this. And I lived right yeah. there and I was, well, I mean, I was six, but still, I mean, I'd never heard of this. Hmm. Fascinating. Great job. Thank you. It was really fascinating to read about. Um, I was really scared to do this one, to be honest. Yeah. Because there's so many, 
I don't want I don't want to say something that's offensive, you know? Sure. Yeah. Because we're talking about a real event that happened, an actual seems accurate event that happened. And a lot of people still struggle to call this anti Semitic. Like when you look at articles, it's yeah. still debated by people um that this is, was not an act of anti Semitism. Yeah. I don't I don't know. I mean, I have a hard time saying it's not. To be honest, yeah. it feels very, very racially motivated. And, um, you know, I at the same time, I also have a hard time completely faulting all the actions of the black community at the time. Yeah. So it was hard. I didn't want to demonize anybody here, but yeah. it's, it's well, really tragic that two young, innocent lives were lost as just due to circumstances of hatred. Well, it's definitely, I mean, I think it's one, it reminds me of a lot of situations where politicians will intentionally pit groups against each other as a way of the dominant group being able to maintain power, right? So like uh, politicians who say to impoverished white folks that like the reason you're not employed is because immigrants are stealing your jobs, not because like these big corporations that we own and work for and operate are like abusing their workers and, you know, not offering livable wages or things like that. So it's, I think it's a it's an interesting story to also think about how could the way these groups like where these different news sources come from and how they might view the different communities impact the the stories that they tell about it and the the kind of narratives that are out there as well. Yeah. Yeah, that's true. There's um one of the articles that'll be on on the website for the for my sources is about kind of looking back at the case now and there's reports from a reporter at the time who I think worked for the New York Times and he has a lot of quotes and and probably sound bites if you if you look into the article I think there were some links where he talks about how he was like appalled at the way the story was being told at the time mm-hmm. and that he said that mo- like most of the outlets were trying to steer this away from calling it an anti-semitic event but yeah. he was there reporting on the scene and he's like, I remember what it was like. And it was 100% like full of hatred towards the Jewish community. Like you couldn't go anywhere without hearing like the most horrendous things being screamed. Yeah. And, you know, but you're, I mean, it's totally true. It's like you pit people, you pit groups against each other that you don't even care about. Mm-hmm. And just whatever one ends up on top, you'll just get them some other way. Yeah, exactly. So uh, it was really sad to read this, but uh, I was I was glad to read that the the families of the victims were were united on it and that they were able to find like a common ground in the because yeah. so I hate when you when you see these things where someone young dies or so uh, and then the family can't and then the family ends up hating the other family. You know what I mean? Exactly. Yeah. Uh, it's, it's, yeah, it's, it's nice that they understandable, were... but heartbreaking when that happens. <laughs> totally. Like both reactions are totally understandable. And it's also nice when you can see people heal to a point where they can recognize their, the good they can do together. Yeah. Yeah. So, so. Oof, wow. Well, what, how would you rate the episode? Mm, I think the episode I'll give a C plus. Because it was entertaining, but confusing. I did find it entertaining. I was gripped, but I had to rewind a few times when they started talking about the money stuff. Yeah, I I would give it a a C, C plus. It wasn't terrible, but it wasn't, but definitely they were giving us like poorly constructed red herrings along the way that just ended up kind of muddying the story, I think. Yeah, yeah, I agree. What about 
now that now that you've heard the crime, do you have any thoughts about uh, what you'd give it for dealing with the crime? Well, I mean, I don't think that once it got out of the police's hands, Stone's investigation didn't really seem to focus on race as a motivating factor. Mm-hmm. It kind of turned to the the embezzlement of the brother. So I would say, I mean, obviously it's not a direct right. translation of the story, but oh god i'm gonna give him a d because <laughs> i just like i'm thinking about the unnecessary weird diatribe about native americans i'm thinking about like all the times Cragen calls all the black kids homeboys like it's yeah. just there's a lot of kind of very cringy yucky moments <laughs> throughout yeah. so i'm gonna give it a d yeah i gave it a c minus for the same same sort of reasons like it had a lot of similarities to the case and i appreciated that they kept some of those in there and Mm -hmm. yeah they always changed the case a little bit but i appreciated that they didn't make it racially motivated in the episode yeah because i don't think they would have handled that well um (laughs) (laughs) but again i don't appreciate the you know the homeboys and the yeah and that kind of crap so yeah yeah c minus I didn't include this because I I want to I kind of want to watch this and see if it's if it's good. Uh huh. So a one person play came out called Fires in the Mirror: Colon Crown Heights, Brooklyn, and Other Identities. Um, it came out in 1992, so uh-huh. pretty quickly after everything happened, and it's by Anna Devere Smith who's okay. an actress and playwright. And she's actually known for a lot of things. You'll you'll know her. I think you've seen some of the stuff she's in. Um, <laughs> Nurse Jackie. Well, oh, what was her name? She plays Gloria Akalitis on Nurse Jackie for six years. So some main character. And The West Wing, she plays for six years on The West Wing. Oh, I totally know her. Her, Yeah. Okay. So this actress, I don't, I don't know how she is or whatever, but she's also a playwright. She made this one act, one person play. And I watched a trailer for it on YouTube uh-huh. because I think you can watch all the scenes. It's okay. um, it's a piece where she plays all the characters in it, obviously. And there's like, I think 20 people and she plays all real people who were interviewed for the, um, after the Crown Heights riots, I think by okay. her and her team. And then she acts out their, their like, their parts Story. of the interview. Okay. Like monologues. Um, my only thing, it got awards. It's supposedly very good. I'll just put a link to the trailer. Okay. <laughs> and let you go, let you watch let it and you let all people decide. watch it. It just, it's 1992. I'll preface that by that. Okay. It's, yeah, supposedly it's very good, but the trailer gives me, remember that Pause. video I made you watch? <laughs> that video of the, you can go to three or four stores or just one where it's like all the people doing the, the same line. Oh, yes. The audition tape thing. It yes. gives me like that vibe a little bit. <laughs> okay. <laughs> but a little children of the corn kind of feeling. It's a little, cre- yeah, it's a little creepy. It's very, yeah. Okay. Intense. Okay. <laughs> By the way, everybody, did you know that our podcast is free? Free? <laughs> yes, you heard right. Free. <laughs> we have new episodes every week, so you should definitely subscribe. And it costs absolutely nothing. 0.00 dollars to write a review. And it really, really helps us out. Also, most people try a podcast because a friend recommends it. So if you're enjoying the show, please tell a friend. 
We love connecting with our listeners also, so please feel free to send us an email to rippedheadlinespod at gmail.com and find us on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook at Ripped Headlines. Speaking of amazing deals, did you know that Ripped Headlines now has a Patreon? (gasps) You can go to rippedheadlinespod.com, our website, where you'll get the link to our Patreon, some other great perks, and the joy of of supporting one of your favorite podcasts. Hot deals, deals on deals, deal planet. (laughs) Deals on meals, (laughs) meals on wheels. And thank you so much for listening to Rip from the Headlines, where you get the facts and some fiction. We'll see you next week. And until then, stay out of the headlines. See ya. It's super hot. I'm probably just putting the emphasis, emphasis on the wrong part of the word. <laughs> but it's the Hatsala Ambulance Corps. They are followed... So, let me start that sentence over. At 823, the Hatsala Ambulance Corps, followed by the NWE... NWE. I, I'm, I are keep you saying... saying- I'm saying ambulance and NWPD. I was going to say, is it supposed to be, is the ambulance what you're trying to say? ambulance, but I keep accidentally saying ambulance. 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 (laughs) The ambulance came. Can you put that as a blooper at the end? Oh, I'll probably just leave it in.